2: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
4: Actually, in Azerbaijan, one of the best things that they ferment is these green tomatoes. They're so delicious. It's like the most delicious pickle ever. And the brine is actually the best hangover cure.
3: <laughs> Food writer Olia Hercules was born in the Ukraine in her new cookbook, Caucasus, A Culinary Journey Through Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Beyond, is in fact an amazing journey through a culinary world that few of us have ever seen. But before I chat with Olia, Athena Calderon is here to discuss how to dress up your holiday table. She's the author of Cook Beautiful. Um, I'm envious today. I um, spent the weekend looking at your book, Cook Beautiful, and it is indeed beautiful. I mean, it's the kind of book I'm sort of inclined not to like because everything's Ooh. so beautiful. Well, you know, it's you know, it's it's I, I'm more of a dirty kitchen kind of person. But the food was quite appealing as were many of the recipes, so I was intrigued.
5: Oh, well that's good.
3: But I let me read you a quote. Uh, I was in Florence briefly in the 80s and I ran into a guy called Giuliano Bugiali. you probably know the Italian chef and yes. instructor. He was giving a course and I took for a day and he said it, somebody in the course was going on and about beautiful food on a plate. And he got a little annoyed. And he said, you know, Madam, properly cooked food always looks good on the plate. So mm. you, you talk a lot about aesthetics being part of art and being very much part of food. So tell me why bujiali's wrong, that just properly cooked food doesn't necessarily look good on the plate.
5: Well, I mean, I think that a lot of the techniques that I use in, in Cook Beautiful when I'm talking about how to plate your food and, you know, why to do certain things to your food, they, they always relate back to cooking techniques. You know, it's never just make something look pretty and it's not going to taste good. I'm kind of arming the home cook and trying to teach them pretty fundamental and basic cooking techniques like not overcrowding your roasting pan before you roast your veggies so that you get a beautiful golden sear. So I feel like while... I do always strive to create beautiful food because I do think that it's incredibly alluring. It's not as though it's sacrificing the taste or the flavor. They're more working in tandem always. So I think that the angle of the book is definitely the beauty. And because my background in design and styling, I think that the food definitely gives this beautiful presentation. But I think what I'm teaching people is definitely about cooking techniques that make your food taste better, make you work more efficiently within your kitchen. And then they also keep your, keep your snap peas looking bright and green and crunchy instead of soggy and wilted.
3: <laughs> um, you know, on the cover, you, you have roasted asparagus and radishes. R- roasting radishes, I've seen a couple other places. W- what about roasting in general, roasting things people don't normally roast? is, is that You see that as a trend?
5: necessarily see it as a trend the reason that i did it was because i think spring is so much about things are suddenly becoming so alive pushing their way through the frozen earth and all of a sudden we have all this bright abundant greens and sometimes we're not necessarily ready to just eat the salads that we eat in in summer a lot of like the raw food so i thought well all of a sudden i'm seeing so many radishes and breakfast radishes in particular which is in that one recipe At the markets, uh, but I thought, well, is there a way to take this more summery kind of, you know, cold, crunchy, crisp vegetable and and give it some warmth and just kind of help bridge that gap between winter and spring a little bit more? And I love roasting. I mean, I am happy that you brought up that recipe because I feel like most of the interviews I've been doing, we've been talking about all the fall foods, and you know, I roast so much in the fall. I mean, it's almost exclusively what I do.
3: So, give me two suggestions for setting a table that would improve my, my, my messy life in the dining room?
5: Um, I think that you can really fake it with some, just a, a whole bucket load of candles on your table. I mean, I think that that's something that's super simple. I think that you can use cloth napkins instead of paper napkins. I think you can maybe mix match some of your dishes and glassware to just make it feel a little bit more eclectic. And I think this goes back a little bit to the kitchen, but I think having your timing, like having things really prepared in advance, you know, anything that you're roasting, you can roast and really serve it at room temperature. Um, I would recommend that people make a dish that they can make in advance, especially in the fall and winter, like a braise or a roast um, or a dessert that you can make in advance. So I think that being a calm cook and being able to entertain with grace and being able to put everything out on the table at once makes for a really beautiful presentation that guests appreciate. So I think getting yourself organized in the kitchen and making smart choices about what your menu is can elevate what the table looks like. Okay, for someone,
3: I'm I'm the uninitiated in terms of presentation. So okay. I, I want the 60-second or 90-second course in how to style food on a plate. What, what are two or three basic propositions I should keep in mind if I'm going to make the food look good while I'm serving
5: it? I mean, a couple of really quick Tricks are, one, don't overcrowd the platter too much. I think having some negative space is really nicer than, like, a mound of food. So I think maybe just, you know, holding a little bit of restraint, even that means, you know, getting up a second time to refill your platter. I think that any type of green herbs chopped roughly by hand and sprinkled over... Basically, anything from a fish to a pork chop to a steak to a piece of chicken is going to make it look vibrant and more alive. And I think if you don't have a fear of it, which many people do, buying a really inexpensive microplane is a way to add beautifully wispy pieces of fennel or red onion. You know, I think that just having something that has a delicate touch and that has a curl to it on the top of your food just gives it a little bit extra kind of pizzazz. I mean, and fennel is a great one. You know, people always throw the fennel fronds away. They they don't think it has use, but those are so beautiful, just sprinkled over, you know, any, any protein dish.
3: And so since the holidays are coming up, do, do you have a specific approach to the table for the holidays?
5: When it comes to the holiday table, I definitely, like, pull out all my tricks, you know, I, I take out the nicer china or, you know, my mom's china from growing up. I, I think that there's something about the ritualistic memories for me as setting the Thanksgiving table with my mom as a child. I love to incorporate something In my menu onto the tablescape. I'm always trying when I'm thinking of the tablescape, you know, what can I pull that is more culinary focus? Like, I don't think that you need to use fanciful blooms that are expensive to adorn your table. I think that you could take gourds, you can take pomegranates and cut them open, you can crack walnuts and have them spilling out from a bowl onto the table. You know, something even as simple as taking some extra rosemary and tying it together with twine and With other herbs it's something that's fragrant it's something that relates back to your meal I'm always looking at the seasons to inspire how I set the table and taking inspiration and notes from the natural world I don't think you have to be fussy in order to set a beautiful holiday table you can forage right out of your own backyard and it can still be elevated and beautiful and and have a homemade touch Athena thank you so much Thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you.
3: That was Athena Calderon, interior designer, home chef, and author of the book, Cook Beautiful. You can listen to Street Radio as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you?
6: Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line?
7: Hi, this is Rachel from Los Angeles, California.
6: Hi, Rachel. What is your question?
7: Well, every year around Christmas, I like to give my friends and family's cookie tins filled with various home baked goodies. Unfortunately, with my work schedule, I can't always plan on having time to bake right before the holidays, So I like to do what I call binge baking. On a free weekend, I bake as much as I can, and then I freeze it. Closer to the holidays, I can simply defrost, package, and hand out. My question is that many recipes say I can freeze things for around two months, and I'm wondering why I can't freeze for longer. Would it affect the taste and texture, or would getting a vacuum sealer let me keep it in the freezer for a little extra time?
3: Well, if you have a pretty firm cookie, like a sugar cookie, for example, I think that would last longer than two months. And I think a vacuum sealer for the log or whatever you're going to shape it into, probably not a bad idea. That would probably help. The secret in vacuum sealers, by the way, is the thickness of the plastic of the bag. You want the thickest possible plastic. Thinner plastic will let moisture through when you get crystals. What can happen is the crystals form and actually break through the plastic. So you want to get the thickest millimeter bag you can, but that should help. But I would say a sugar cookie can last three or four months in the freezer, right?
6: I would think so. It's the more
3: delicate doughs, yeah. probably not, but a nice firm sugar cookie. Well, she's talking about actually
6: time. baked cookies.
3: Oh, already yeah, baked?
6: So I, yes.
7: I, yeah, I tend to bake them and then stick them in the freezer, and then in December I take them out and
6: defrost. I think if they're well wrapped, I mean, I think if you right. made them now and just really wrapped them extremely well, they'd be just fine. What do you think, Chris?
3: Good. Uh, no. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, freezers dry things out. And three or four months in a freezer of a baked cookie? No, I don't think that's going to be too good. I would freeze the dough and then have Mm -hmm. a day or two around the holidays where you bake everything off. But you're talking about, like, massive numbers of tins, right?
7: Yeah. Like how many? You know, like 20-some with, like, various Uh. cookies in there. So I'm not just making, like... A gingerbread cookie.
3: Right.
6: Mm. I'm a
7: bit of an overachiever, I guess.
6: <laughs> Boy, it seemed like you'd have more room in your freezer for dough
3: than you would for cookies. I would freeze the dough, and I'd take a couple of days before you need to assemble the stuff and bake everything off. But then most of the work's been done. I think frozen cookies that have been sitting for two months, probably not ideal. Actually, I'd give those to Sarah, and then,
8: <laughs> and, then I'll,
3: and then I'll do the fresh-baked ones, please.
7: Perfect. We'll do an empirical test. Yeah, yeah, we like that. We like. Well, have that. you
3: actually, I have to ask, have you ever baked cookies and frozen them for two months?
7: I have last year.
3: And? And no one
7: complained, but it was free cookies, so maybe I should give them
3: a test. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course not. How could you complain? Oh, thanks for the tin of holiday cookies. They were stale.
7: Yeah. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, I, I, I would freeze the dough, but maybe there's a sweet spot of four weeks or six weeks you could get away with it. You should bake some now, freeze the cookies, and then freeze some dough and then do the test. And certain things like gingerbread or gingerbread cookies would probably hold up pretty well.
7: Awesome. Thank you guys so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
3: Thanks. All right, bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: Hi, this is Elizabeth calling from Houston, California. How are you? Very well, thanks. you for taking my call. My pleasure. How can we help? We host quite a bit, and I'm always looking to add fun and creative side dishes to the menu. What are dishes you two are currently sharing with your hosted events or even weekday meals that you can many.
3: I've given up side dishes in <gasps> general. It's so easy to shock Sarah. You know, you say the slightest little thing, she falls off her chair. I've gotten to the one pot, the soup, the stew, the rice bowl, the noodle bowl, and that's how I eat most of the time. But if I am going to do a side dish, it's most often a simple raw salad. One thing you can do though, if you have a 12-inch mm-hmm. cast iron skillet, is get it ripping hot and take something like Brussels sprouts, cut them in half, You might actually toss them with some oil or some oil cooked with some anchovies or some salt and then a little bit of sugar and then cook them cut side down to start in the skillet and you char the vegetables. And I find that charred vegetables, it only takes about 10 minutes, get great, great flavor. And they do this in a lot of restaurants. That would be my quick go-to side dish. But most of the other times I put the vegetables in with I just did a pumpkin soup. It's a Haitian pumpkin soup we just did at Milk Street. And it has meat in it, but it has potatoes, it has sweet potatoes, it has pumpkin puree. So the vegetables and the meat all go together.
6: Sounds delicious. Well, Sarah? Yeah. <laughs> I like having a lot of side dishes. I entertain for my family. I don't ever have anybody over for dinner. Well, something I do a lot is shredded vegetables, where you take the grating disc of your food processor and all those root vegetables that take so long to roast. If you just peel them and grate them on the coarse side of the grater, then they take no time at all to sauté in a large skillet in the oil of your choice. So parsnips, turnips, carrots, beets. Beets take a little longer, and you usually end up adding balsamic, but you just sauté them. And then I finish them off with a little bit of acid, like some sort of lemon or lime or orange, and some toasted nuts. And that's really yummy. And if you want to make it even more interesting, throw in a little feta cheese or something just to melt.
3: Yeah. Raw salads. I mean, fennel's fabulous. I raw. love, Radishes yeah. are fabulous. Beets can be served raw as well if they're shredded or cut into very small pieces. Apple, jicama, a lot of those things make great salads, and they're quick to make.
6: My mom used to slice eggplant and then just brush it on both sides with vinaigrette. And then she just would put it on sheet pans and just bake it off and then just top it off with some chopped fresh herbs, and that's really Mm. yummy. Tahini sauce makes anything better, roasted vegetables, Mm. so that's fun.
3: Okay, last one we'll go. Butternut squash, peel it, cut it into rounds, put it in a 450 oven on a baking sheet with salt, and then take it out, and then you can top it with anything you want. Yes. So There you go. Wonderful.
6: Thank you. More than you
3: you bargained for.
6: Yeah, thanks for calling. (laughs) Thanks,
3: both of you. Take care.
8: Appreciate
3: it. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a question about tagine or bolognese or mincing ginger or how to season cast iron, please give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. You can also send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
6: Hello. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line?
8: Hi, it's Nancy.
6: How can we help you?
8: I have a question about using glass pie plates. When I first bought the glass pie plates, which was probably about half a million years ago, it said not to use them above 350 or 375 degrees. But when I was looking for a sour cherry pie recipe, they all said to start off at 425. They specifically asked for glass plates, and then they said lower the temperature. And I thought that was too high for glass, and I couldn't figure out why they would specifically ask for glass. And I'm wondering, since glass is so sensitive to temperature changes, why wouldn't you start it off in a cold oven and just bring it up to temperature together?
6: Well, you couldn't do that because the pie dough would melt before it ever became, you know, a pie dough. It would just like the butter would melt out and you'd have a mess. So you have to start it. In, uh, but I think, Chris, tell me if, if I'm wrong. I think that the glass can handle 425. No, no. This is
3: Pyrex uh, is tempered. It can easily handle 425. I use glass pie plates, always have. I always start my pies at 425. I find if you start at 425 for 20 minutes, then I drop to 375 to finish. Yeah. It sets up the crust nicely, and the glass uh, Pyrex conducts heat very well. I find it does a nice job of browning the bottom of the crust. Yeah, it's good for the bottom crust, it. yes. Uh, you'll have no problem at that temperature. That being said, the one thing you have to really watch out for, and we know this because years ago in the kitchen, we brought out, I don't know, it was a glass measuring cup. It was a glass bakeware, and we put it on a wet counter, and it was a bomb went off.
6: You mean when it was right. still hot? Oh it,
3: oh, it was piping hot out of a very hot oven. And we put it onto a wet counter, and it just exploded. So the one yeah, thing you can't do them. is have a, any kind of liquid touching the hot Pyrex. But 425 is not a problem, and that's a good way to start a pie for yeah. 20 minutes. I agree.
8: Okay, so okay. I, I just I'd never seen them specifically ask for glass before.
3: No, it's but good trying. to get a brown bottom crust. Well, you can also look. With oven mitts, you can hold up and look at the oven. <laughs> well, that's and true,
6: yeah. and see, and <laughs> see Oven mitts how, are important. Here, yeah, yeah, see how brown it is, whereas you're going to have to guess in a metal pie plate.
8: So if you used a metal pan, would it be like the old recipe, so if the metal pan's always 25 degrees hotter than a glass pan?
3: Yeah, I just find the Pyrex does a better job overall of browning the crust okay. than a metal yeah. pan. Okay. That's my experience. Yeah, me too.
8: I just didn't want to hear an explosion in the oven. It no, happened.
6: who would?
3: No, <laughs> but just don't throw water on it, that's no, all. No, yeah, don't, be, be don't do sad.
6: that. Okay, thanks, Nancy. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Yeah,
3: bye. bye You're listening to Mill Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, I'll be chatting with Olia Hercules, author of Caucasus, A Culinary Journey Through Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Beyond. She introduces us to a whole new way of thinking about food and cooking. After the break.
2: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Olya Hercules is a Ukrainian-born food writer, stylist, and chef. Her new cookbook, Caucasus, A Culinary Journey Through Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Beyond, describes a journey through one of the most fascinating culinary areas of the entire world. Olia, how are you?
4: I'm really well. How are you, Chris?
3: I'm good. Uh, we're going to start with something I never start with, which is your new book. I usually wait to get to that. But um, <laughs> it's called Caucasus, but it's spelled K-A-U-K-A-S-I-S. Uh, what does that word mean?
4: Um, it's actually just... Um Caucasus, the same way as we spell it with a C, but I wanted to give it a slightly idiosyncratic feel to it. But I've been thinking about so many names, and they went, at some point, it went super esoteric. And then I decided, you know what, I just need to call it after the region, because, I mean, it's interesting in itself. So decided to go for the area kind of name, but I went with a Greek spelling. So...
3: Azerbaijan, Georgia, does this include Armenia too? What, what What is the area, the Caucasus?
4: Yes, it definitely includes Armenia. Um, I did not travel to Armenia. Even though my auntie was Armenian, she actually grew up in Azerbaijan and Baku and Nagorno-Karabakh. I wanted to go to Nagorno-Karabakh, but the war started there again, so I was not able to go there. And after I went to Azerbaijan, they wouldn't actually let me into Armenia because I had an Azerbaijani stamp. It's all super like regional politics, uh, sadly. But I've covered Azerbaijan and Georgia mostly, and then um, kind of my my auntie's Armenian recipes as well, and a a couple of recipes from the smaller nations of Caucasus, so um, Ossetian people and Abkhazian people, etc.
3: I was looking at the photographs, which I love. There's there's one on page... um 40 that almost looks like a Vermeer uh Ah, it's a younger woman uh with a mortar and pestle her hair braided uh, up on top with sort of a pea soup color uh wall behind her um but there are also pictures of of mountains and and gorges what is the landscape like is is it all over the place is it mostly mountainous what is what is it like
4: uh, yeah, it is actually a little bit all over the place, but mainly mountainous. It's stunning from kind of landscape to people, to food, to music. It's um, every time I land there, my, the hairs on my arms stand on end in a very positive way. It's, it's one of the most charismatic places that I've ever been to, I think. And everyone you meet is very charismatic. And the landscape is just, um, is just absolutely gorgeous. Those mon- mountains really take your breath away.
3: So one of the things I I take away from this book is, which is something I don't usually get, is a real sense of authenticity. There seems to be a lot of roots there that, that still exist. Is that true? That Like a lot of these recipes just feel like they've been made for a very long time. Uh, or is a lot of society, they're very modern?
4: Um, I mean, it's it's definitely changing. But you're right. The recipes do feel ancient however it's almost a revival of those old recipes at the moment because as you know during the soviet union um stalin and and the and the other kind of uh, soviet communist leaders were aggressively pro industrialization so they've actually destroyed quite a few uh, or, try, or attempted to destroy quite a lot of traditions And a lot of um, ways of kind of artisan ways of making either whether it was cheese or wine. You know, everything was kind of mass produced. So people have actually forgotten quite a lot of them. But at the moment, it's really, it's so good to see that quite a lot of younger Georgians, for example, are trying to revive it. So there's a really, there's, there's a thriving um, slow food movement in uh, in Georgia. And they're trying to uh, revive old wheat varieties and old grape varieties, making this amazing natural wine and starting to make cheese again and buffalo butter and etc etc so the revival of the ancient which is uh, really lovely to see actually
3: so let's talk about the food there's uh, something used a lot it's sort of a plum paste um yep. you, can, you can pronounce it because i can't what's the name <laughs> <of it? laughs>
4: yeah there's quite a few guttural sounds in uh, in Caucasus in general in both Georgian and Azerbaijani languages um so the Georgian paste is called tkemali um and it's uh they they basically just uh pick these sour plums called kemali as well and they just stew them down and then they pass it through a sieve getting rid of the skins and the and the stones and then they season it with salt and garlic a little bit of hot pepper and pennyroyal mint and sometimes a few spices like blue fenugreek and coriander but it you know recipe is very kind of household to household but it's the most delicious thing And they use it in a variety of ways. They use it uh, as a condiment, basically. It's like, you know, a Georgian ketchup, let's say. It's one of the most uh, famous condiments. They use it with meat. They serve it with, um, you know, grilled trout in the mountains I've tried it with. And they also marinate beetroot in it. And it's just one Mm. of the most amazing beetroot dishes that I've, I've ever tried.
3: Another recipe, which had a great photograph, is fermented green tomatoes. Could you talk about that?
4: Yes, so actually in Azerbaijan they pickle a lot with vinegar and it's in uh, Georgia where they have this tradition of fermenting things and one of the best things that they ferment is these green tomatoes which, um, you know, it's an amazing recipe for England uh, because our tomatoes never ripen. <laughs> and then people just think, oh, what should we do with these green tomatoes, which are inedible, really? It, it, the flavor is insane. It's, it's so, they're so delicious. It's like the most delicious pickle ever. And um, you make it, uh, two incisions in the tomato, kind of almost cutting them into, into quarters, but not till the end. And then you stuff each tomato with garlic, chili, and cel- celery leaf. And then you let it ferment in, uh, in a really weak brine. You have to try it. I can't explain properly what it does to them, but it just creates the most amazing tasting pickle. And the brine is actually really good for you. Um,
3: boiled beef, I love. You know, it's popular in Austria Tafelspitz, it's popular in France, pot feu. Yep. Uh, how do you make boiled beef in the Caucasus?
4: Khash um, beef is indeed a uh, boiled beef broth, and it's one of the best hangover cures that I know. So Azerbaijanis don't actually drink much, even though they're not vehemently Muslim. Drinking is not really in their culture. They love drinking tea. Uh, but Georgians love to have a big party called Supra, um, so they start drinking um, kind of in the, you know, early evening and then they eventually stop uh, halfway through the night. And um, if somebody's sober enough, uh, usually somebody's wife or mother, <laughs> they would put this um, massive pot of water on, uh, throw a couple of onions in and a big, uh, a big piece of beef and sometimes some tripe as well. And then they leave it to simmer very slowly, pretty much all night until those men uh, wake up in the morning. You know, when you drink too much, you actually wake up really early with the sore head. So they uh, wake up and um, pour themselves this big bowl mm. of really rich, thick beef broth. And, and then they season it themselves. So it's uh, normally uh, garlic pounded in a pestle and mortar with uh, loads of salt um, and some herbs. And that's it, really. So just herbs and loads of garlic, and they sip in it, and it goes down so smoothly. And then they wake up with a really fresh uh, head, and they start drinking again.
3: Um, salt. You have a sfeneti salt. I don't know how to pronounce that. Coriander seeds, fenugreek, caraway, dried marigold petals, hot chili flakes, hot paprika, garlic. Is, is this a, a salt people have just on hand for lots of purposes, or it's used for a specific reason?
4: Uh yeah, lots of purposes. Um they're they're really big on their handmade flavored salts in Georgia in general. So yeah, the Zvanetti one is from the Zvanetti Mountains, the most beautiful region on earth. Um so this woman made Zvanetti salt as you describe, so loads of salt, raw garlic, and all of those herbs and spices, which actually just grew around her house, are put through this really ancient meat grinder. And it, you put fresh garlic with it, but as there's so much salt, it comes out at the end quite dry. so these it's just the most beautiful flavored salt, and they use it. the way that she used it quite a lot was either on you know in salads or tomatoes or other vegetables, or she she flavored her meat pie filling with it. Or the most delicious use was uh, she made this homemade yogurt that we had every morning for breakfast just out of a mug, just drinking it. And she would season it with this um, Mm. herbaceous kind of salt on top. And that was just the most delicious thing ever.
3: So one of the recipes I I really found interesting at Caucasus was tarragon pie. You know, bunches of tarragon, spring onions, hard boiled eggs, etc. Is this um, a category of recipes, uh, really unusual pies like this?
4: Uh, absolutely, there are quite a lot of herb-only fillings actually in pies, in flatbreads, all over Caucasus. Um, this tarragon pie was a very special recipe. However, um, when I uh, came to my um, uh, Georgian friend's um, house, uh, it was actually her parents' house, so who were who, who were dead; they were gone. And we came in at uh, at noon and in the afternoon. And of course, she said, uh, can I pour you some wine? To which we said, oh, no, we're working. Uh, we need to shoot these recipes. There's absolutely no way that we're drinking wine right now. And she said, look, just a little shot, uh, because there's a tradition. If you come to somebody's um, house, um, uh, especially if they're not no longer alive, uh, you need to drink to their health. So she put all of these really elegant crystal shot glasses on the table and gave me a little bit of homemade wine. Uh, to pour into these glasses. And I, uh, being as clumsy as I am, I, it spilled over the glass and into the cheese and the, the, the tablecloth. Mm. It was a big mess and I felt really embarrassed and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry for, uh, for doing this. And she said, no, Olia, this is such an amazing sign. In Georgia, we say that if if this happens and if the first kind of drink that you pour in the house and it, it spills over, it means that my ancestors or whoever used to live in this house are giving you a green light, basically, or huh. welcoming you into their house. And she said, I have a feeling that my mom is telling me that it's okay to finally give the recipe out for the tarragon pie. Um, so she so she gave me a recipe on her mom's behalf. Um, so that's how that recipe ended up in my book. I think it was the pastry that was um, super secret.
3: So the, how do you make the filling for this?
4: Uh, the filling is literally loads, loads of bunches, leaves of... Uh, Tarragon chopped up, mixed with chopped boiled eggs, so it's quite an intense filling, really well seasoned, and then it gets encased in this yogurt-based pastry, which is really short and light, and um, you serve it with some uh, sour cream or or some really thick Greek yogurt, and it's just uh, mm. it's a delicious fresh, fresh pie, not 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 unlike any other pie that I know.
3: So give me a couple examples or stories when you went into Georgia or Azerbaijan. You must have had some pretty interesting times there.
4: Uh, We really have. Uh, I've repeated a trip from 30 years ago with my brother, basically, where me me and my mom and my dad and my brother drove from Ukraine to Azerbaijan. Um, My parents are a little bit eccentric like that. Um, I was only three and my brother was uh, ten at the time. And then, uh, so me and my brother decided to repeat the journey. Uh, we couldn't drive through Crimea, sadly, so we just uh, flew into Georgia. But we, uh, yeah, we went to Georgia and traveled all, the, all around. And um, there was a time when uh, my brother was kidnapped by a group of Georgians and they got him so drunk by the by three o'clock in the afternoon that I found him under a tree being pecked by some chickens. Uh, wait, wait, was,
3: wait, 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 wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute! It's gonna stop. He was kidnapped. Say this again. He was kidnapped.
4: He wasn't literally kidnapped. Yeah. Uh, there was a wine festival going on, I and I was with my friend who was a natural wine producer. So I was absolutely fine drinking this beautiful wine, and he got kind of this big group of men found out that he was Ukrainian, and they love talking about politics. And my brother is really quite eloquent. Uh With his politics talk uh, and he's really good at toast, and they love a toast in Georgia, so they started giving him this substandard red Georgian wine mm. and got him so so drunk it was it was really i've never seen him like this in my whole life. I know that my brother can hold a drink i mean he's a really massive Ukrainian bloke, but yeah, I don't know what they did to him, but in three hours that I lost him to these Georgian men, mm. I then found him uh, under a tree, which was, uh, slightly embarrassing, but also very funny. And then we, I did a trip, uh, to, we had to shoot it for the book. So I went with my friend, um, the photographer of the book, actually the brilliant Elena Heatherwick. And we, uh, did a really intense trip around Georgia for 10 days. Uh, so kind of waking up at six o'clock in the morning, going to bed at nine o'clock at night, that kind of thing. Um, I had to, um, Bribe um, someone in Azerbaijan. I hope the Azerbaijani authorities are not listening to this interview. Uh, we found this really beautiful ship graveyard in Baku, huh. and uh, we really wanted a, a photo of me sitting in this old Soviet car with the with the ship shipyard behind behind us with these old kind of d- dilapidating ships, and we uh, we we went there. But the guard said, "No, no, you're not allowed to go in." It was really exciting. So I gave him some money on the sly and then he let us go through and then he gave us five minutes and then he started shouting that we had to get out. And my, my photographer was very brave and she just kept saying, one minute, one minute. <laughs> and we got it in the end. Oh, there were a few more. Yeah, it was an interesting journey.
3: So, so what I'm going to remember most about this interview is your brother under a tree being henpecked. <laughs> uh, there's something about that that's just indelible. Uh, Olia, oh yeah, this this is <laughs> Caucasus' great book. I, I love this book. It's really unique. It doesn't feel like anything else anyone else has done. So terrific job and all the best. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much, Chris.
3: That was Olya Hercules, author of Caucasus, A Culinary Journey Through Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Beyond. You know, it's been said that scarcity is essential for any great cuisine, and I agree, from stir-fry to flatbreads, pickling, fermenting, Iberian ham, and even hoe cakes. In the Caucasus, skill and ingenuity was employed to turn something like sour plums into a seasoned paste that transformed everything from a simple roast chicken to beets. Now, in this age of abundance, it's worth remembering that in the kitchen, perfection is really less of a prize than hard work and, of course, a personal touch. Nigerian poet Michael Bassey Johnson once wrote, quote, when you're convinced that what you offer is yours, whether it be mediocre or standard quality, Your originality will make people love you in a way you did not expect. Right now, I'm headed over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's holiday recipe. Hi, Lynn. How are you?
1: I'm great, Chris.
3: Uh, One of our writers just got back from Umbria, and uh, he was researching porchetta, which, of course, requires lots of herbs and a whole pig. (laughs) Now, (laughs) it's delicious. We've all had it before. It's something you order out, or maybe you make a porchetta sandwich. But he came back and was so excited about this combination of pork and herbs that we decided to do a a tiny version of it, something you could actually do at home. Uh, And so how we get started?
1: So, Chris, we tried a variety of different cuts of meat and eventually settled on a boneless pork butt. You want to make sure you get the pork butt here, sometimes labeled as Boston butt. You don't want to take a picnic shoulder and do this roast, um, even though they're cut from the same part of the pig, from the shoulder. The pork butt has the shape that we're looking for, because we're actually going to cut in where the bone was and open this up like a book. So Chris, you talked about the herbs before. That's a huge part of this recipe. We have a cup of rosemary leaves, a cup of oregano leaves, 20 cloves of garlic. And we take a half a cup of fennel seeds that we grind into a powder. So there's a lot of herb flavor here.
3: So, I mean, a cup of this herb, a cup of that herb. uh, It's obviously not a mild dish. Anything else you want? I bet you're not done.
1: We are not done. We're actually going to add some pancetta, eight ounces of pancetta that comes from a different part of the pig. So we're trying to replicate that whole hog experience that our writer had in Umbria. So we're adding some pancetta into that seasoning on the inside of the meat. We also add a little bit of butter. That just kind of makes it spread a little easier, makes it a paste.
3: So on the inside, spices, butter, pancetta. But I would guess you're going to put something on the outside, too.
1: You would be right, Chris. So you're going to roll this up and tie it. And on the outside, we're going to use a spice rub of salt, pepper, brown sugar, and ground fennel. And this recipe, the hallmark of this recipe is fennel flavor. So we're really trying to put it in as many places as possible. You rub the roast with that, cover it with plastic wrap, and let it sit in the refrigerator for 24 hours for all of those flavors to really get into the meat
3: and then the next day you cook it for 24 hours. I mean, this is gonna be a long, slow process, right?
1: It is a long, slow process, but most of the time is hands-off time. So this is gonna cook in a low oven for six to seven hours. You wanna let it rest for another hour after that. It's really important to let it rest. If you don't, you're going to end up with kind of messy slices of meat. Uh, and it's such a beautiful coil with the herbs inside. You really want to be able to see that. So you want to let it rest. To finish it off, we make a really simple pan sauce with the juices of the meat. We brighten it up a little bit with lemon juice, uh, some more fennel, and a fruity olive oil. That just gets mixed together, served alongside the meat.
3: So this is one of those recipes I make fun of because the first instruction, the first thing is day one. Right? I mean, this is definitely a two day ordeal.
1: It's a special occasion recipe.
3: And that's why it's special occasion, because it takes two days. (laughs) However, it is absolutely fabulous. Well, there you go. Thank you, Lynn. You figured out how to take porchetta and do it at home. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. You can find our recipe for fennel rosemary porchetta at 177milkstreet.com.
3: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we reveal our picks for the top 10 cookbooks of the year, right after this break. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is in fact a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is Milk Street Radio. Right now, I'm joined by Milk Street's editorial director, J.M. Hirsch. He's here to discuss with me our top 10 cookbooks of 2017. J.M., how are you? All right, how are you doing? And it's time for our holiday list, the best cookbooks of 2017. Mm-hmm. I have five, you have five, and I get to go first. Fine. <laughs> so let me start with one of the best books of the year by John T. Edge, a Southern food historian. The name is The Potlicker Papers. The first half is about food and how it interacted with the civil rights movement. It was really fascinating. Georgia Gilmore, a well-known cook down south, ran private restaurants out of her house Uh, People like Johnson and Kennedy and Reverend King used to meet over food. The rest of the book goes on to discuss the food after that time period. Uh, Johnny Reb's Dixieland served steaks three ways Shermanized, burnt to a crisp, Lincolnized, warm with a red heart or (laughs) stonewalled rare. A great book, and he discusses the confluence of food and the civil rights movement. Highly recommended. John T. Edge, The Potlucker Papers.
0: My first pick is Market Cooking by David Tanis. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is not the sort of book I normally like. It's kind of an ambitious goal. He wants you to shop and cook by whatever's appealing in the market. He organizes the book kind of oddly, but I, I I can't get beyond the appealing recipes. They're wonderfully simple. I mean, David Tannis is the former uh, chef at Chez Panisse in, in Berkeley. And, you know, he just has a wonderful way of working with simple ingredients and big, bold flavors. One was the Turkish spoon salad, which is just tomatoes with lemon juice and sumac pomegranate molasses, pistachios. I mean, it's very simple, big, bold flavors drawn from around the world. And he really wants you to get you to start thinking about cooking when you're shopping and and let the market drive what ends up on your table rather than the other way around, which is how most of us shop. It's just a really fresh... Easy, simple, bold way to approach cooking. And, and I was very inspired by it.
3: So either we've, we're we stealing from David Tannis or David Tannis is stealing from yes, us. Big exactly. bold flavors. Exactly. I guess everybody's <laughs> in on it. Uh, my second book is a, is a home run. It's Yotam Adolenghi's newest book, Sweet. It's about desserts. He does something a little different here. He starts with a French and English repertoire, but he does a lot of interesting things Persian love cakes, tahini and halva brownies, beet ginger and sour cream cake. He also knows how to dress up a recipe. So it looks good and it tastes good. So a little bit different. It's not the authentic cooking in the Middle East. It's uh, Northern Europe meets uh, the rest of the world in desserts. Gorgeous book, Sweet by Yotam Adolenghi. Another home run from the master himself.
0: You know, it wouldn't be a Chris Kimball list without an Ottolenghi book. (laughs) No, every year we can put him on the list. (laughs) It is a beautiful book, actually. So my second pick is Hazana by Paola Gavin, and it is a collection of vegetarian Jewish recipes drawn from about 20 countries around the world. And, you know, it's it's this fascinating reminder of how vast and diverse Jewish food is. You know, she, she offers us things like uh, saffron noodles with tomatoes and harissa from Tunisia, uh, five-ingredient potato and spinach croquette from turkey, uh, a rice dish with raisins and pine nuts from Egypt, and I gotta say, all the recipes, once again, are those kind of clean, simple, bold ingredients that just give you a lot of power, a lot of punch, and for very little work. And I, I I was really impressed by this book.
3: Let's turn from Jewish cooking to the Palestinian table by Reem Kassis. She actually grew up in Jerusalem as part of a Palestinian family. And she mentioned to me, uh, I interviewed her recently, she said that in her grandmother's generation, people moved around the Levant, you know, from Syria all around the Middle East. And so all that food got kind of mixed up. Now, the Palestinian table is appealing because the recipes are everyday simple. Fried eggs with sumac and sitar, a rice stuffed chicken, a milk pudding, lentil garlic and pasta soup. I made that a couple of weekends ago. is great. This is food that, that makes sense in Boston or Vermont as much as it does in <laughs> Palestine or Jerusalem. So uh, the Palestinian table, Reem Kassi's great Tuesday night recipes uh, and just great food.
0: So, you know, speaking of doability, my next choice is a really weird one, but I, the more time I spent with this book, uh, the more I fell in love with it. It's, it's Kaz Hildebrand's The Grammar of Spice, huh. and, and she's actually a designer by trade. She designed many of the Ottolenghi books, in fact, and Nigella Lawson's books, and what she's done is she has paired these beautiful designs with Spice's and it's an alphabetized account of all the major spices across the world. Now, I will say it's a bit of an odd choice that she alphabetizes them by their scientific name rather than their common name, so it's a little bit confusing at first. But once you go in, you get mesmerized by these beautiful designs, these full-page, intricate, like woven designs, and then she gives you the history and the culture behind so many spices. But then in very simple, very easy terms, she explains to you how to use it. And it's, it's again, it's a case of like non-recipes. She tells you to eat it with chili and coconut milk and chicken. What I love about it is she takes away the intimidation from trying new things. She introduces you to spices that you may not be familiar with. And without like heavy-handed recipes, she just kind of very breezily walks you through through how to work them into your everyday cooking. And and that really, that wins me over every time. Uh, My
3: next book is Six Seasons by Joshua McFadden. Uh, He worked at Dan Barber's Blue Hill Restaurant in New York. He then went to work with L.A. Coleman and Barbara Damrosh. They have that great farm in Maine, the Four Seasons Farm. And today he has his own restaurant in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Look, this is a vegetable cookbook, but the notion is you cook seasonally six seasons, not four and I've read a lot of vegetable cookbooks, and you know, some of them are impractical or they go back to sort of 70s uh, cooking, moosewood cooking, which means a lot of <laughs> cheese and cream. Uh, but this is, this is great food. I've made a few of the recipes, simple salsa verdes, ragu, simple crostatas, roasted mushrooms. You can really cook out of this book. It's not intimidating, uh, and, the, and the flavors are great. Uh, Joshua McFadden knows his vegetables. Six Seasons by Joshua McFadden. <laughs>
0: I was really won over by Bread Is Gold, a very unusual cookbook by Massimo Petoro. and you know this is this is the man behind the three Michelin starred Osteria Francescana in Italy, one of the top restaurants in the world. Normally, those aren't the sort of books that appeal to me. It's usually chef food that nobody's going to be able to do at home. But this book is actually based on his work with sixty chefs from around the world to turn an abandoned theater into a combination soup kitchen and art installation. And the book documents a lot of that process. And the book is focused on the mission of this art installation, which was to, to trigger conversation about food waste and how so much of the food that we throw away actually could be used, which is a huge consideration these days in the food world. So it has a wonderful mission. At the recipe's are an odd bunch, I'll, I'll grant you that, but they're not unappealing. Uh, banana peel chutney. I, sounds odd, I know, but it looked delicious. And but then there's also a lot of very simple things such as like a seven-ingredient uh, spaghetti with garlic and olive oil and breadcrumbs and chili. I mean, it's a real hodgepodge, but it is a gorgeous book, and it feels like you're looking into somebody's journal, frankly, and and it's just a very casual approach to an otherwise unusual subject. And and it's I again I was kind of won over by the the oddity of it.
3: Jam, we should start reviewing movies. <laughs> Uh, Deborah Madison's book, In My Kitchen, is just uh, charming. I mean, the great thing about Deborah Madison is she's been cooking for 35 years, started the Greens Restaurant in San Francisco, which was a Zen center. And she has the ultimate confidence, having done this so long, that everything's simple. You know, when someone does simple food, you know they're a pro. Uh, and so she has a classic cheese souffle in the book, or she has a simple coarse cut egg salad or roast asparagus with arugula a uh, carrot soup with a relish. There's a lot of restraint in this book and self-confidence, and that really comes through. I mean, this is a book that only someone who's been doing this all their life could come up with. Very practical, very appealing. In fact, we did a frittata with her recently in the magazine. and
0: yeah, it was fantastic. It, it was
3: spectacular. You know, six ingredients, uh, takes 10 minutes, you're done.
0: That's my list. All right. Well, just when you thought you knew what I was going to say next, my final book, The Chef and the Slow Cooker by Hugh Ackeson. Oh, man.
3: (laughs) You're hard to figure out.
0: I got to tell you, I do not like slow cookers. I find that all the food that comes out of them tastes the same no matter what I put into them. I've never been a fan. And, you know, their worst sin is the grape jelly meatballs.
3: I think Julia Travel actually used to make something like that once. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) But Hugh, who is a true intellectual, incredibly well-educated, and he brings that to his food and to, to so much of what he does. And so he decided to take a chef's approach to using the slow cooker and just kind of completely rethink the way it is used in the home kitchen. And, and so he gets us away from the grape jelly meatballs and starts giving us things like chicken soup with chilies and coconut milk and lime, uh, a lamb pozole. Um, he does have meatballs, but his are veal, Swiss chard, and tomato sauce. Of course. (laughs) You know, it's it's such a fresh take, and it does show that with the right approach, you know, uh, an an overlooked or taken for granted piece of equipment truly can turn out very good food. I still don't know if I'm going to use mine, but I do like this book.
3: The great thing about doing this with you is I just never know what to expect.
0: (laughs) I I, I get art installations, and I get slow cooker
3: books. Uh, You're always surprising. There you have it, our top 10 cookbooks of 2017. J.M., we'll see you next year. Sounds good. That was J.M. Hirsch, Milk Street's editorial director. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street Radio, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, for listening.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate Producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior Audio Engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production Help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel eggloff Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.